Hello, this is Richard Joy, Executive Director of the Urban Land Institute, or ULI Toronto. Welcome to a special rebroadcast or repodcast of our PropTech interview series with Terry Olnick, co-chair of the ULI Membership Committee and Managing Director of Multiplex Canada. We are grateful for the sponsorship of Willow, a global technology company working within the real estate and infrastructure industry. Through its renowned digital twinning technology, Willow empowers asset owners and operators to make proactive, data-led decisions in real time and better manage risk. Originally aired this past summer and fall, we hope you enjoy these conversations as Terry unpacks trends, advancements, challenges and innovative solutions and technology in the real estate and development sector. Where have we been and where is technology taking us? How has COVID-19 shaped the prop tech landscape and why is having a digital strategy so important these days? We hope you enjoy. Scott Stewart is Chief Executive Officer of IBI Group, Inc. and IBI Group, responsible for providing executive leadership with a particular focus on operational management and execution. He became Chief Executive Officer in August 2013, but has been with the firm since 1983, initially as a transportation engineer and planner. He led the development of the intelligence sector of the firm turning it into a worldwide business with projects and offices around the world. Scott has been an, an active member in a number of professional organizations, including sitting on the board of the Transportation, Transportation Association of Canada, TAC, and the board of ITS Canada, where he fulfilled various roles, including chair. Scott received his Bachelor of Science Civil Engineering degree from the University of Waterloo. Welcome, Scott. Nice to be here today with you. Great. We're um, really excited to have this conversation with you. I've, I've known you for quite some time, and I've, I've always found you as, uh, as a pioneer. So let's, let's drill down in a little bit to that today. I trust that's not a commentary on my age, Terry. <laughs> no. Um, all right. So why don't we, uh, why don't we start off by, by you telling us a little bit about where did Scott come from? Where did you grow up? What made Scott Stewart who Scott Stewart is today? I had the pleasure of being born and raised in the formative uh, years of my, my life in Sudbury, Ontario, and it's certainly a great place to come from. It, um, but what was so, so compelling about it for me, and, so, and I really didn't appreciate it at the time, was that it was so multicultural. And, and um, and there was also a, there were no barriers in terms of class or income because everybody was doing very well. And um, you blended together and you acquired this great appreciation for European culture and, and nationalities. And um, that was one part of it. The other part of it was that uh, in my uh, summer work terms, I was able to work for the mines and that therefore also uh, was able to pay my way through school through the co-op program at the University of Waterloo. And like most other guys, I played various sports. So I was in football and hockey and track and field. And, and, and I found that that was a really instructive insight into how people work together and, and how teams are formed and what was important uh, as a team as opposed to an individual. 
you uh, you you mentioned that you'd received um, advice from a school counselor that led you to where you are today. Can you tell the listeners about that? Well, I, I was um, I was reasonably good in sciences and math, and and also I had uh, I had won a couple of scholarships in art, and I thought, well, my goodness, but what a fabulous combination! Maybe I'll become an architect. And and uh, my high school counselor gave me some very interesting advice, and he said, you know, Scott, that ninety percent of all buildings are designed by engineers. And I thought, well, that's really quite interesting. Um, maybe I want to be an engineer instead, and I'll design all, all those buildings. What he didn't tell me is that that he also included Quonset huts, and and uh, as part of the buildings that engineers design. <clears throat> so I. I um, with that, I then went off to uh, Waterloo and uh, uh, joined the, uh, the civil engineering program at the university. All right. So now let's fast forward. Um, you start your career, your professional career. You've you've graduated, and you migrate to to what's your first what's your first job after graduation? I go back to Sudbury because I was given this great opportunity to. Uh, work in the transportation department, but we were also then doing a major regional uh, transportation plan. With that, there was an economic uh, review that was undertaking. There was a land use uh, element to it. And I was part of them, that team at a very young age, uh, putting together uh, a strategic plan for Sudbury. And what was the most, one of the most interesting things about it was that when we looked at the forecast of population and employment, we were looking at negative growth and it became a, a huge challenge of how do you then manage for negative growth? But the other thing that then was tied into that, that that was really compelling for me is how it tied together economic activity, growth, mobility, um, to underpin an urban environment and to help define all those relationships between the built form, the mobility, the infrastructure to support those built, uh, those activities all driven by uh, economics. And that became a very significant part of, of my interest. And I also, within that um, particular initiative, uh, was responsible for putting together an economic model uh, and, and it integrated land use, transportation, uh, economic model. And, and that really helped give me a perspective on what urban development was all about. So you took, you took that lens, you took that view, and, and now you look at cities holistically in a much different way. Absolutely. So, so from your studies in Sudbury, where did you go from there? Uh, I then went, uh, I had the pleasure of going to the city of Halifax, um, where there was a group set up to deal with the transportation problems in the city of Halifax, because there was expected, and there was urban development taking place along the waterfront, and transportation was a huge issue. And the group that I was part of and uh, was the Halifax Tra Traffic Management Board. And it was all about taking different approaches, including the application of technology, to managing transportation demand. Uh, and everything from improving transit services in the uh, urban area, but also to providing better information to users about how to get to and from different locations, how they got back and forth uh, to work. And um, so it was a fascinating program. It was, a, at that time, a very significant uh, effort financially. And uh, we were given a free reign about what we could, relatively free reign, about what we could apply in the way of technology to improve transportation in the city. 
So what what time frame was that? That was, my goodness, thank you. Uh, that was in the early 80s. And, and uh, it, I mean, what was so compelling was this whole idea of technology and computers to do this, to provide this solution. Now, we were way ahead of our time in terms of thinking. Uh, we are ahead of our times in terms of what was really practically available. But this whole idea of a traffic management center was so compelling because it dealt with multiple modes all operating under one kind of broader set of objectives and policies. So now you've been able to connect technology to solving a problem, a more global issue. Where did you take your learnings from there? I then joined uh, Transport Canada for a period of time and I moved to Montreal. And uh, I was with the, uh, the Transportation um, Demand Center uh, in, in Montreal, uh, TDC it was called. And uh, they were involved in funding various research programs across the country in sort of new technology. It was sort of a variation of what we now see as, as incubators. And um, <clears throat> I mean, strangely enough, it was uh, one of the first pilots of a changeable message sign on a highway. And it was one project down in Vancouver. Now you see them all over the country. And what was so interesting is that is just one example was, was to see how that one new initiative could provide such significant benefits and how it then turned into a business that then has really certainly rolled out across Canada, but also you now see it as a standard feature globally. Help managing traffic, making the environment better, uh, safer environment and cutting down the congestion. So now you've seen technology work multiple times you have, uh, you join IBI and you take this learning and you start to apply it to uh, more of a, a global approach? Well, I, I then uh, joined uh, IBI and uh, moved to Toronto. It was a firm of about um, 60 people at the time. And uh, the firm was very heavily involved in policy uh, work, uh, strategic planning for Transport Canada, and, and it was innovative in that it, it wasn't focused on design and construction as a solution. It was really looking at behaviors and how you could impact behavior to then reduce the, the congestion and maybe avoid having to build. So that, that whole notion of managing activity then became uh, of, of major interest. But the other thing is that was a consulting firm. It was a high-end consulting firm. It came out of uh, KPMG. And it was a partnership structure. And um, I quickly realized that we were pretty heavy with some very, at the top with some very, very bright people and I had to find a different avenue. And uh, so the avenue that I then sought out was maybe in the area of technology, we can carve out something that's really unique about IBI in the transportation field. So just for the, the listener's benefit, when did IBI also take on traditional architecture and engineering? When IBI broke away from um, what was then Pete Morgan Partners and now KPMG, uh, it broke away because it had been doing a lot of policy work in housing. And the principals at the time decided that, you know, they really wanted to get into creating the solution as opposed to advising on the solution. 
And part of that creating the solution was then to get into architecture to actually create the physical form of what they had talked about as a, an important service. So the architecture started with the establishment of the firm, uh, which was in approximately 1978, and I joined later in the uh, early 80s. And, and so, but it started very small. It started as 30 people um, with two offices, one in Toronto and one in Vancouver, and uh, it had an ambition to become a major architectural firm, which it has. It, you know, IBI is now uh, probably the sixth or eighth largest architectural firm globally, and uh, one of two of the top, depending on how you look at it, architectural firms in, in Canada. And how many employees do you have? We have a total of 2,700 um, firm uh, across the firm, and that's globally. We have about 60 offices globally, uh, and the office structure ranges from India, where we have two offices, to Los Angeles, where we have uh, a, a couple of offices, actually many offices along the West Coast of the United States. Um, so yes, 2,700 people, 60 offices, um, and uh, six continents. Excellent. So when, when did you see it was time for, for IBI to step outside of North America and start applying smart city techniques globally? Well, the, the first was in Toronto was sort of to solve the problem of transportation. We, um, we saw an opportunity to actually create the solution for the traffic management system. And that was on the Burlington Skyway. And so it was a Berlin Skyway freeway traffic management system. And what we had seen were the big uh, computer companies, uh, Honeywell and others that, that were providing software and typically it was a failure. And it was a failure because the people who were providing the platforms really didn't understand the essence, the purpose of what the software was to do. What were the benefits? And we took a bit of a leap and we said, hmm, maybe this is an opportunity for us. And, and so with the, uh, partner out of the United States, we got into the software development, and that became our first major deployment of software. Subsequent to that, and almost within about six months, as that was being rolled out and turned on, we were successful in Scotland, Boston, and California, and we grew from a very small group uh, of about 20 people to about 60 people in about um, eight months. So, and it was a very specialized area, but all of a sudden we had become recognized as a global player in this very narrow space. And we were not just a designer, but we were a solution provider. And that was a huge step for us. Subsequent to that, if I get on just, just for another second though, we, there we were providing big systems that took a long time to develop, uh, cost a lot of money to governments and governments you know, uh, changed their policies. And it became a big concern for us that, uh, and they rely on a tax base. And we saw another opportunity, which was the, um, the bridge to Prince Edward Island. And it was a toll bridge. It had, a had to have a traffic management system. And we thought, tolling. Now there you're part of the income stream of the people who are building the asset. And that led to our first toll system in uh, Canada and first toll system globally. And it became very important because as I said, we were part of that revenue stream between the users who, are, who benefit from the asset 
through to the owners and, and we became, if you will, the tax collector on behalf of the owners. So it was a whole new thrust for us and really vital because so much of what we even talk about now managing assets is how do you pay for them? How do you pay for even the operating costs? And on reflection with, with all that's been created with these systems on mass, has anyone gone back to look at the data to tell you, uh, are you seeing any stories out of the data now that you can look back so many years? Well, there's a data on our side and um, we, we certainly, I mean, right now, uh, as an observation, we, we process about 400,000 revenue trips a day. We collect about 1.3 or $4 billion on behalf of our clients locally and toll systems that we have in place in India, Greece, uh, the Caribbean, uh, Mexico, and, and Canada, and, and now the United States. Um, the, the, one of the big things that has come out, especially, and also on the traffic management side, where we have some 30 systems deployed globally, the big thing that has come out of it is that there's been an evolution in thinking about how these solutions should be provided. Clients are no longer willing to spend or able to spend millions of dollars and wait two or three years for something to be deployed. They want a solution now that's cost effective now. And, and so we've had to rethink our whole model about how to respond to the market. How do we lead the market? How can we invest in the right kinds of solutions that get us out ahead of the competition? And, and uh, that has been very instructive. Uh, and so we've, we've made a, a move and, and maybe I talk on that a little later about to delivering services as SaaS models in, in a much different way. So globally, how much is um, IBI tech focused? About 20% of our revenue uh, comes from uh, our, through our intelligence sector. Uh, the, uh, and we are reinvesting about 1% of the total revenue um, of the firm back into new development and new products. I've talked a lot about the, the transportation side, but um, what is really important is that if you look at the elements of the transportation solutions, it's getting data, managing data, and then applying it more widely to realize other benefits. We have that insight in buildings. We understand why people need buildings. They understand the value proposition within those buildings or in other kinds of infrastructure. So our big thrust has been to then adapt our thinking and the tools and technology around creating new services for building owners and infrastructure owners. Doesn't matter if it's asset management um, or EV, uh, electric vehicles or virtual reality, augmented reality, whatever it might be. We, we feel it's really important to be able to have that attachment to the assets that we design. They're fabulous, iconic buildings, but historically that would be it. You know, we would design the building, we would never see uh, uh, or have any more involvement in it for years. And, and now our thrust is to be part of the continuing evolution of those buildings in large part through the use of technology to manage not over the building, but also activities within, within the assets. So uh, clearly you see a need for technology in these buildings that hasn't been solved. Many would say that the, the next evolution of technology for buildings are digital twins. How's, how's IBI positioning itself 
to be a, a provider of a digital twin? The, uh, I mean, it's a great question. Um, because we see the digital twin as providing the platform that provides us that continuity over the life cycle, right through to then uh, the operations and management and asset uh, maintenance of the asset. Um, you know, everything we are doing is, is in a um, digital format now, I would say everything, 90% of it. Um, we do find that some of our clients are still in some of the contracts and even in certain cases, in some of the contractors, it, it's, uh, we're still sort of stuck back a few years. But our objective is to be part of a much more cost-effective solution to be able to provide uh, hard assets. Uh, as uh, you and I have discussed, Terry, many times, the cost of construction has really not realized any of the great benefits of technology over the years. If you look at even going 30 or 40 years back, it's all been at the fringes, and we really have to be able to look at a different way of building. We see that the digital twin is part of how we can start to break down the barriers that exist between the planning, the design, the construction, the implementation, the operations, and maintenance. And, and we see the digital twin as this, uh, if you will, this vein that connects all of that. So recently, you've created what we call the IBI sandbox. And, and maybe, maybe you can tell us a bit why you've created that. Who are some of the uh, participants um, and, and what, what it is you were trying to achieve with, with having that sandbox? Maybe if I can put it into context. We, we, we decided two years ago, two and a half years ago, that we had to make a, a pivot to be a technology-driven design firm. And, and there were four components to the pivot. So it's not just that we're going to be using the latest in BIM platforms and tools and, and robots, but that's a key part of it. We wanna be more efficient about what we do. We wanna be able to deliver things faster, better, cheaper. And that's stream one of our, our pivot. The second part is that we're creating these new platforms as software as a service, a new revenue stream and a new relationship with clients that go on for an extended period of time. The third part of our pivot is about being part of all new technology. It doesn't matter if it's 5G or blockchain or virtual reality, augmented reality. And we thought, okay, that's pretty compelling. But we also realized when we looked around at what was happening in the tech ecosystem in, 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 was that there was really no, no um, there was nothing that was happening for cities. And so we felt we wanted to be part of that ecosystem about technology and urban environments. And thus we created the sandbox Smart City Sandbox, and it has a variety of partners on the construction side. It has also OPG as an energy provider, critical component of, of uh, cities and their growth. Uh, the Weather Network, it has the Ontario Center of Excellence, which is a, a platform for supporting startups, um, and uh, a developer. And it was all about bringing the right kinds of parties together so that we could engage, clash, and innovate in a more creative way. We actually built out uh, the Smart City Sandbox in, the, in our office, and we were gonna launch it at the last AGM, and COVID came along, and so we didn't. But what we have done, and I can share with others later, is we have built a digital twin, back to your earlier question, of the Sandbox. And the Ontario Center of Excellence just used that digital twin to run their AGM. 
and you actually go into to the sandbox. You can go to where OCE presents your information. You go and see the different startups and you can engage with the different platforms and services that they are they are providing. And we see that, that, that that's, it's a bit Marshall McLuhan in that the medium becomes the, 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 the message. And there we are describing the digital twin, new technology, and there we're embedding the experience in this kind of environment to really illustrate how IBI is making this pivot uh, uh, to, uh, to technology. And who knows, Terry, maybe in time we will be a technology company driving design. That is the vision, isn't it? That is the vision. Are there any other uh, ideas that came out of the sandbox recently that, that sort of inspired you? We had uh, our, um, we had a, a retreat, an IBI retreat, and we created uh, out of that notion something called the hub. And we had all the IBI people go to this, they registered, and it was a, a virtual building and you would go into the foyer of the building, you would go into where there were speaking sessions, you would go into other areas that showcased various projects that we had done or new, new platforms or new software that we were promoting uh, or places where you could go and meet colleagues uh, within the firm. Again, all digital and everybody experienced it from their home when it was over two days. So we see this is a whole new area of, of opportunity for us that's a bit different than what we've seen in the past of what I would call the, 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 uh, the single screen displays. This is an immersive experience for people. Oh, the other so. things that came out of the sandbox though for us is, is that we, um, we um, have invested in various companies and that was part of the objective of the sandbox was to be part of what was happening in the, the ecosystem. And one of those investments is in a switch um, an EV charging company that um, <clears throat> we felt because we have so many clients in the buildings area, electric vehicles are the, the target is I think about 50% of the vehicle fleet will be, of the new vehicle fleet will be electric vehicles by 2025. Charging is going to be a really big issue and the electrical grid to support that is going to be a big issue. So you really need smart chargers and that's why we went to switch we become the glue between the clients and switch the startup. So we become a route to market. And that's our philosophy about being in the sandbox is that we are a route to market. We have domain knowledge and, and we can't create all of the solutions ourselves. That would be foolish of us, but we can be a facilitator for that along with our other partners in the sandbox, because we see that as a way that we're really going to solve some of the many challenges that we have in urban environments. I, I'm with you, Scott. I see uh, the desire for people to park, uh, charge their cars while they're parked in their apartments is going to become a very big deal. And right now, uh, even buildings that are being delivered today are just meeting the minimum requirements for electric charging. Yes. And a lot of these condos are going to be in trouble trying to figure out that solution. Very quickly. And, and then, then it goes right back into the grid and how you manage that and opportunities for uh, other passive kinds of energy generation. But the other thing that came out of the innovation side was, uh, and I just want to touch on it briefly, is, is some of our new solutions that I, I thought you might find of interest. Sure. Um, we developed a, COVID came along and all of a sudden social distancing, self-declaration of health and well-being was really important. 
and extending that along with managing the use of the space, like back to our traffic management systems, we built a platform called Enspace. And it's all about office environments, people going into the office, we have social distancing. We can only really use about 30% of the space with social distancing. Uh, we want people to self-declare. We wanna know when they've been in the office, where they sat, when it needs to be cleaned again. And, and so we built this platform called Enspace. And I'm pleased to say within two weeks of uh, us launching the product, we had our first uh, sale. And just this past week, we, we, uh, uh, we were able to secure an arrangement with a very uh, significant uh, accounting firm uh, where they have over a thousand users now uh, using the platform. And it's all about the efficient management of the space itself along with the building. That's fantastic. That your your sounds like your time to market was was really rapid. You understood a problem, and you were able to deploy a solution uh, with with ease and agility. Agility is a key word, certainly, because in this in this space that we're in, in this world we're in, speed to market is vital. So, if someone has a great idea at IBI, Scott, how does that how does that get up to the right the right listeners so that you can action. The, um, there's certainly been a culture within IBI, uh, and, and I wit witness our intelligence practice and how we get through. If people have good ideas, they are given the latitude, the freedom, the sense uh, of authority to, to move on, to, to not just think about it, but to take action. Now, we are a company and we have certain requirements for normal business practices, but as long as you're doing that, Innovation is a key part of what we do and everyone should be considering that. We have um, run competitions internally. We've run global uh, competitions. We have run um, uh, hackathons and um, we've had winners out of those. And in fact, one of those hackathons has led to another product that we've created called Curb IQ. We see the management of curb space being really important in cities in the future especially because of e-commerce and limited uh, curb space availability, the future need for more EV charging um, and where those EV chargers are. So we developed this uh, platform called Curb IQ and in its ultimate form, we see it replacing the need for signs on curbs that say don't park here or park there between these hours because it would be all digital and it would be then available digitally in the uh, in-vehicle information system. So it will improve the physical environment, it will improve the management environment, it will improve the revenue generation for cities and, and, and do so in a very safe uh, way. So that's our vision about Curve IQ. So multiple solutions on the go. Multiple solutions. Now, so we're not gonna be successful in every one and that's part of uh, what startups are all about. And so we're building this startup mentality within the organization that don't worry about failing. Worry about taking action. And if you fail, okay, we'll learn from it so we can go on and then do other really interesting things. But we will succeed ultimately. Has COVID accelerated the adoption of, of the trial and error of a lot of these platforms, Scott? Oh, oh, geez. Um, well, first and foremost, the biggest fear that we had with COVID, um, and like most of us, we all adapted very quickly. We were within two weeks, we had everybody working from home globally. 
Our biggest concern was on the client side and governments in particular, not being able to adapt quickly. But I have to tell you, there was like a warlike mentality that, that took over and the rate of change has been staggering. And we have seen governments change from what was a five-year program to getting things now set up in three weeks. And that's the new way of doing work. And that applies to when you're working with them directly, or if you are working on behalf of your private sector clients, getting approvals and such. And so the benefits have been huge, absolutely huge on everything. So not only for yourself, Scott. The environment. And, and, and. Yes, it's forever. Yes. So, so it's, that part has been really quite, uh, quite enlightening. But what's also really important about it, Terry, as you know, it's all being enabled by technology. I mean, if you did not have the platforms in place, then you are going to experience very significant revenue drops and, and you drop in profitability or whatever might be on the private sector side. And huge risk, massive risk. And the firms who are able to adapt with technology, changing procedures have, have actually done very well. Fascinating. So <clears throat> do, you, do you see the, uh, the digital and prop tech has transformed the built environment in Toronto already, or are we still on our journey? I think we have just touched the tip of the iceberg. Uh, I think there is all kinds of things that, that are yet to come. Uh, and it's everything from cladding on buildings and, and, and the solar generated um, energy uh, from, from the building cladding, uh, on-site storage, uh, the, the autonomous and connected vehicles, the electric autonomous and connected vehicles, or the connected autonomous shared electric vehicles, which is the new the, the new uh, kind of uh, uh, moniker. Um, the, uh, <clears throat> the ability to work from home, I think it's going to change the mix of how the home is now going to work. Uh, I would think that there will be pressure on the smaller condos. But on the other hand, it creates new opportunities in the podiums in these various buildings that are no longer now being used for bricks and mortar commerce to uh, because of e-commerce, that, that those then become part of the community of that, that environment. And, and you may have seen a significant reference to the 15 minute community going forward where we st still will have high rises, we will have density, but the community will be what is within the 15 minutes. That doesn't negate large scale public transit because it will go from those nodes and connect those nodes, but it's not the same kind of profile of demand that we used to have of those peaks. We will have a nice flat demand, I think, the, it's a great opportunity to take advantage of that, that flattening of the curve, uh, getting better realization of value from our infrastructure. Um, and one of our initiatives in the uh, energy sector was to uh, implement systems that cut the peak down uh, of demand. And this is uh, related to our water um, blue IQ platform. The, the energy savings, I mean, we also have peak energy consumption um, that has a peak cost rate to it. And if you can reduce the, and this is where switch was important for us. One of the big areas with switch and electric vehicles is with that electric vehicle fleet, those electric vehicles could become a very massive store of energy. 
drawing down cheap energy uh, through the night, relatively cheap because the, the, the reactors are still going. You could keep the turbines going, uh, fewer of them, and you're still generating the energy, but you don't have the size now in your plants for that peak demand in the morning because you can draw it back from the vehicles. And it sounds a bit like, really? But if you start to look at the scale of the electric vehicle population, and, and therefore the potential to cut down on those peaks in the morning and the afternoon, the benefit to the community uh, and cities at large will be enormous. Very exciting times. Wow. So if you have to give future digital advice to the architectural engineering and construction community, you know, what, what would you have to say about the future of digital and prop tech evolving over the next three to five years or five to 10 years? Um, one, get involved. Two, it's more than just getting a better front end digital tools and how you do your work. I think you have to really consider it in a more fulsome way about what the ultimate solution is and what the value proposition is in terms of recognizing fully that those buildings are, are going to be going through dynamic changes. And all of that is gonna be driven by technology. And, and, and so, I mean, the simple answer would be think more widely uh, going beyond uh, traditional or simple, the, the obvious digital solutions because there are exciting times ahead and you really want to be part of that. Or otherwise you want to exist. I mean, I've said that many times to firms. If you don't have a, a broad digital plan and the digital plan goes beyond just BIM and virtual reality, if you don't have a broad digital plan, you won't be in business in five or eight years. You know, there are those out there that realize digital is, a, is upon us, but really don't know where to, to go for a digital strategy. Where would they go? Who would they look to? Give me a call. They, 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 uh, <laughs> um, I mean, that's a good question. And, and I've seen some firms adapt uh, by, for example, going out and hiring a, a senior person responsible for additional strategy. Uh, the, um, and that's one way to go. I, I would say that another would be to reach out and become part of the uh, the ecosystem more fully. Uh, and, and by that, I mean, our concept in setting up the sandbox is that, that it, this was not, and is not the exclusive domain of IBI. It is really part, it is out there for designers, contractors, suppliers, uh, infrastructure uh, service companies to be, to work together, to address the challenges, look at the solutions, and, and, and uh, be more engaged in what's new and exciting. And that, that, I mean, that to me, I mean, uh, I, would, I offer the sandbox up as a place for people to consider and, and come to, but uh, I would encourage everyone to look out into their community um, and get engaged with, with what's happening because it is really exciting. You know, there's uh, 5G is upon us. I, I would say that Connectivity has become uh, of top importance for building owners. Uh, there, are, there are ways to measure your connectivity and protect it, uh, like Wired Score. Um, 
making sure that people have multiple options as it relates to data in their building, uh, 5G, how it's deployed, taking advantage of the 5G in their building, and then understanding the nature of IoT. There's a couple of uh, technologies that are there now, and really it takes uh, very little planning to ensure that you have, um, that you're 5G ready or IoT ready in a building. You know, sometimes <clears throat> owners don't appreciate how little upfront can help them Absolutely. in their buildings. Yes. But, but pushing early will make a huge difference so that they're digital twin ready at the end of it all. Right, and, and, and you know, just to even making allowances for uh, 5G uh, um, units to go into the building, making provisions for it at the time you're putting the building together. I mean, it's, it's such a low cost and because it is, it will be, and is especially in buildings, it will be the platform of managing the building, providing service to the, the tenants and, and, uh, and condo owners. It, it, it is so important. Um, and we need to be more forward-looking about how we consider that in the building design. How, how much of the ecosystem that you're a part of, let's say IBI and the architecture side is delivering a Revit model, do you see the other consultants following suit so that it makes it uh, easier to coordinate? Are other consultants on board yet? I think <clears throat> there's a major push, uh, yes. Oh, and it's rapidly changing. I would say that we have been pushing Revit and, and BIM for eight years or 10 years, probably longer. And in different parts of our company, you know, in the UK, they, they've been way ahead with standards uh, around it. <clears throat> but in certain markets, uh, I hate to say it, we're still, because the contract requires that we, we issue a set of PDF drawings. And, and, as our product to the contractor, right? and that I find that really quite disappointing um, because it, it speaks to a limitation on the future. The, the, we have some challenges. I think we have a need and we have some challenges. The need is to be able to create what I had described earlier as a seamless kind of relationship from planning through to implementation and operations. <clears throat> And that will set up a, a much more efficient use in the ultimate end. It will make the cost of construction um, cheaper and I, and I trust faster. But one of the limitations that we have is in, in, in our industry is this friction that takes place. Transactional friction that me handing off or IBI handing off a set of drawings and plans, in whatever form, in its digital form, to someone else is a point of friction. Um, and we have to simplify that. And the approvals of those plans. I mean, what, what our vision on the building side is that if we can, it's like writing software. And, and you know, the agile methodology and, and Kanban and those kinds of tools. Well, it, it, that they came out of software. So if you start to think about it, that we apply that into our design of, of buildings and the construction side, think of, an approval bot or AI that goes around approving and it sits out there and you're doing your design and the, and, and you draw in what the zoning requirements are, what the building code requirements are, the, the building requirements as defined by the client. And so you have these sets of requirements. 
and you're constantly then being measured against that. So you're doing the design once because you're being sort of guided by the limitations of these these regulations. And you now what's happening is there there's a a robot in the background that's saying, oh, we can't do that, can't do that. So then when you're finished, you're finished faster, it's less expensive, better quality. And when you then give that to the city to approve, now imagine if it said on it, approved by ACME certifier, a, uh, an auditable bot or robot. Imagine what the city now has to look at. They don't have to go, I mean, think of, you know, how many, how many times they go through drawings and they do the checks of the drawing. You don't have to do that anymore. And so we are involved in some small initiatives about how can we take robots and technology to be able to bring in all these disparate sources of, of regulations controls around our, uh, our platforms to be able to create that ultimate solution. And then also, so we're protected because insurance is another big issue. And liability, so that when when he gets handed off to the contractor, or maybe gets seamed, if you will, to the contractor, maybe not handed off, it's there's sort of a seaming process. There is an understanding about the assumption of risk and liability in that. And I know right now our insurance companies are very, very concerned about liability because of what's happened in the world and the cost of of, <clears throat> of insurance. But we need we need to do more in that area. But how can we manage that 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 friction if you will between design and construction and then even handing off so that there's a much more seamless process i don't have a solution but i know it's a, a huge need and it's something that collectively we should all be focused on and and, and making it making for a better outcome that is faster better um, and less expensive yeah that would work a lot better for us uh, as a constructor being able to receive a vetted model that's a live model uh, that we believe has most of the clash detection looked after. Yes. Um, that allows us to put a 4D schedule together. Yes. Improve it, take it to a 4D level. Yes. Uh, LOD 400. Yep. And then make the building digital twin ready and have a company like yourself being able then to kick into gear the digital twin and the ultimate solution for the client. And this way you're through the entire process, not, not in sort of start and finish mode. Because once you've handed over your design, you're basically done. Right. And, and, then, and then we get accused because the, 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 in the field there's something that comes up and, and uh, we end up uh, spending a lot of money then on field services that, that require a lot of kind of advice and, and, yeah, it, it sets up all kinds of uncomfortable situations. So we need to be able to do more with technology to, to avoid that. So we have a much more seamless arrangement. So now, uh, now that you've sort of touched on parameters and design, have you, have you started applying some of this technique to parametric design, Scott? Parametric design. Um, yes, I mean, the simple answer is yes. Um, we did a, a recent, one's cute and one's more fundamental. Um, we did a building that was to be, uh, and I guess I can say this now, Pharrell Williams. 
who was the gave it the the design kind of um, aura. And what we did was to um, take a song of Pharrell Williams, run it through a uh, sound oscillator, and then use the frequencies to articulate the finished treatment of the balconies and the glass articulation of it. And it was in keeping with the frequencies of a part of the, the song of Pharrell Williams. That was done in large measure through a parametric modeling. But we're involved, and, and that's, that's interesting, that's sort of catchy. But what we're now working on is much more compelling. It's taking parametric and modeling into a whole different realm and is more in the industrial space again, focused on what is the value proposition with, it's really a value proposition of in the building. What's the building producing? And in this case, it's, a, um, it's an automotive line. And how do we optimize the movement of the, all the component parts coming into the, that building that feed then the line in an efficient way so that you start to look at supply chains, delivery, um, truck stops, building size, relationship of the truck stops relative to the production line. And that is really, really fascinating. The one other area where we have applied um, parametric modeling is around um, transit stations and the ability to take um, move the station uh, along the, the alignment and look at different densities then in a dynamic way around that to see if there's incremental value that is created from the station that would benefit both the city and also pay for the station, so benefit the service provider, be better for the, the, the users, um, and, and do it in a, uh, a sort of a time evolution dynamic manner. So you could look at, well, how much might be invested at the beginning, how much density, when would you allow the density and how did we then over a period of time pay that off? That was fascinating because it was physical planning, it was zoning, it was transportation, uh, it was and it was finance. Um, so, so we do a lot of work in the parametric world, much more than just what I would call the, the, the physical representation of the building. Um, so uh, yeah, parametric modeling is, is it's a, a big interest to me. I go back to my, my, uh, my graduating uh, days and in, in applying models about what, uh, uh, how to make more efficient use of environments. Be interesting to understand uh, how that modeling can assist with what a client might see as the uh, optimized operation of their building at the very end. Yes. Through a digital twin. Right. And even then keeping the digital twin as an active in the operations so that you have other kinds of sensors. It's just not about the building temperature and so on. It's about the processes within the building. Right. That, that gets really pretty exciting. I don't know what the answer is, but <laughs> it's it pretty exciting. So Scott, any uh, final thoughts on uh, digital and the opportunity in the industry? Clearly, I think after um, people watch this webcast, they'll have a different view as to what a traditional uh, 
engineering and architectural firm has evolved into and where it's going. Any other final thoughts? I, I think my the final thought would be, and it really comes from the software world. And in, in the software world, um, there's a model and, and, and a whole group called uh, the GitHub. And it's, and I mention it not because I necessarily see it as an organizational model, but GitHub is a series of specialized people around the world. I think when I last looked at, there were like 30 million uh, participants in GitHub. Who, and you go out to GitHub and you say, I want to do some development. Uh, I need this kind of product. And, and people from GitHub come together and cr create a solution. And they do it faster, better, cheaper. And I only reference it because it speaks to breaking down barriers. And one of the things that you see for, unfortunately, corporate reasons or legal reasons or whatever it might be, that there's a real sense of closeness that takes place in our industry where, oh, I invented something. Well, I got to tell you that if you invented it, it may have a half-life of six months. But if you can share that and collaborate with others, it can become the foundation for, for the business, for the company, and for you that has a, a life that keeps going. And I think it's really important that, that we, as an industry, uh, open up and be much more collaborative about the solutions that we apply, the technology that we apply, and the vision of where we're going with it. And, and uh, that would be my, my one uh, desire to see out of this. I think that's great advice. Excellent. Well, Scott, I want to thank you on behalf of ULI um, for taking the time uh, to share this great insight, the great stories and your vision. And uh, looking forward to seeing the reaction of, uh, of people after they've, they've watched this uh, very precious one hour. Terry, thank you very much. Terry, it is always such a pleasure.